Good evening, everybody. Um, I apologise for the um, slight delay in starting, um, but um, thank you all very much for coming this evening, and welcome to those of you who aren't from LSE um, to come to LSE this evening. Uh, my name is John Hills. I'm part of the Centre for Analysis of Social Exclusion here at LSE. Um, I should maybe say um, that given there is a little bit of interest at the moment um, in how the LSE is, LSE's research is funded, um, um, I think I should explain that the research which um, Anne Power is going to be talking about later on was funded by the Economic and Social Research Council and the Nuffield Foundation, uh, to whom we're extremely grateful. Um, so far as we know, there are no big ethical issues um, involved with um, either of those funders, um, unless, of course, you blame the Morris Minor for the spread of mass um, car ownership um, and climate, climate change in this country. Um, I should, um, myself, and could all of you please turn off your mobile phones. Um, if they're on silent, they do interfere with the electronic equipment, so I'd be grateful if you could do that. Um, you'll see on the board there that there is a Twitter hashtag um, which is hash LSE families, um, if you wish to follow this on tweets. Um, we have three speakers this evening. Um, Mr. Duncan Smith will be talking first um, for, um, I think, up to 30 minutes, um, followed by Professor Waldfogel and Professor Power, who will each talk for 10 to 15 minutes. I, I will um, keep you rather strictly to that time. Um, so as to leave plenty of time um, for questions and answers from all three of the, of the speakers this evening. Um, um, our speakers themselves have a range of views. I'm sure that you in the audience have a range of views as well, and I wouldn't expect you to agree with everything that our panellists say, um, or indeed possibly um, with, with, um, with any of it. And some, some people may have very strong feelings about some of that. Um, but I am sure that the rest of the audience would be grateful um, if you would keep the points you want to make um, to the session at the end um, when we've heard the speakers and, um, uh, and, and they're able to respond um, to your points in the discussion. Um, to introduce our speakers in reverse order, the origins of this evening's event um, lie in the publication earlier this year of the book um, Family Futures by Anne Power, who is on the panel, Helen, Helen Wilmot, and Rosie Davidson, who's in the audience this evening. Um, this book um, gives a voice to the 200 families living in low-income neighborhoods in London and in uh, two northern cities that a team from Case um, spoke to each year for um, eight years, running up to 2006. Um, both, um, I should say, both Family Futures and a follow-up report Obstacles and Opportunities, Today's Children and Tomorrow's Families um, will be on sale um, afterwards, um, after this event. So I hope if you haven't got um, either of those already, you will by the time you leave. Um, Anne uh, Power is Professor of Social Policy here at LSE and is part of CASE. Um, she's been working um, with and on the problems of low-income communities since her work with the End Slums campaign in Chicago in the 1960s. Um, our second speaker will be Professor Jane Walfogel. Jane is Compton Foundation Centennial Professor for the Prevention for, uh, 
Well, it says here for the prevention of children, but I don't think that's right. Um, um, I think, it, I think I should have written for the prevention of child and youth problems at the University of Columbia, is that? Um, at New York. Um, many of you, I'm sure, will be familiar with the book that Jane published last year, uh, Britain's War on Poverty, which highlighted some of the successes, both for Britain and for the United States, from the successes of many of the anti-poverty programs of the last UK government. Um, maybe successes that are sometimes easier to see from abroad than they are to see from here. Um, tonight, she's going to be bringing, uh, drawing on wider international evidence um, on the causes um, of, of, of youth problems and of the, um, of, of the, the support uh, that young people and their families need. Um, I should explain that Jane extremely kindly um, has flown overnight from New York to be here um, with us this evening, flying overnight so as to avoid the chaos that wasn't at Heathrow yesterday, um, and we're very grateful for that. Um, but I'm sure our first speaker needs no introduction. Uh, Mr. Duncan Smith is, as you know, Secretary of State for Work and Pensions. Um, I do note that he, like me, um, is of exactly the right age to be one of the beneficiaries of the concessions which he and the government have just made um, in increasing the state pension age to 66 a little less rapidly than originally planned. But much more relevantly um, for this evening, um, his time in the mid-2000s, um, a few years ago, meeting people living on estates such as Easter House in Glasgow, led him to focus on, the, um, on precisely the problems um, facing families and young people in troubled neighbourhoods. And he's going to start off our proceedings this evening. Secretary of State. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, can I first of all start apologising really because uh, I think the late start is down to me because I, we went to the wrong building I'm afraid. There seemed to be a lot of buildings scattered everywhere and uh, we picked one but got it wrong so my apologies <laughs> for delaying this tonight. Uh, can I uh, then start by uh, thanking uh, Anne for originating this invitation to speak uh, uh, this evening. Uh, I remember actually meeting Anne in my office in the House of Commons back in 2008 uh, and uh, I then, as a result of that, went to visit Trafford Hall, as I recall, uh, very fondly and uh, in a fascinated uh, time there, and saw also the National Communities Resource Centre, uh, which uh, was uh, really, really interesting. So I'm here <coughs> partly as a result of those meetings and those visits, uh, and also obviously as a result of uh, finding myself uh, during the short or long straw uh, and taking the government position that I've taken. So uh, it's a pleasure really to be here tonight to talk about this research that Anne and her team have put together. Uh, and it was while the uh, study uh, was being carried out that I entered the debate about, uh, as was referred to earlier on through the Centre for Social Justice, uh, about the most disadvantaged areas uh, in our society. Uh, back in 2004, uh, I, having uh, left the leadership, I say that uh, carefully, uh, left the <laughs> leadership of the Conservative Party, uh, I set up a think tank called the Centre for Social Justice. Uh, all their stuff is published on the website. They still continue. It's an uh, independent organisation. It has both Labour and Conservatives. Okay. Well, that's fine. Okay. 
Thank you. Well, I think, all right, fine. But I think uh, where I've, with respect, where I've come from, I like to hear people speak first and then make a judgment, not judgment first and then hear the speech. So maybe I should just carry on. Very good. Excuse me. Ladies ladies and gentlemen. Um, madam. Um, um, madam and and uh, and other ladies and gentlemen, um, there is a large audience here this evening. There is a large audience here this evening who have come to hear all three of our speakers. There will be there will be an opportunity for you to make your points later on. If, if, if you, excuse me. Well, it's fine. Uh, actually, I, d I think, frankly, it, it, I'm very happy to take your comments at any time you like. But I think uh, it would be good if I was able to say what I was going to say. I don't agree with what you're saying, but we're happy to say it later on. Okay. Um, could I? Could I ask the? Excuse me. Could I ask the audience? Um, would people like to hear what the speakers have to say? Yes. So I think it would be very helpful if, for the moment, you respect what the rest of the audience have come here to say. To come here to say, you hear our three, all three of our speakers who have different points of view, and then at the end of that discussion, there will be time for you to make your point and for the speakers to give their response to it. So I'd be very grateful if you were to hold on until the end of the presentations. Could you do that? Thank you very much. Please continue. Very good. So I was just referring really to the Centre for Social Justice. Uh, I said it has both Labour and Conservative members on its board, uh, and it is meant to publish reports that uh, are not about one party or another. And the, the reports that they published at the time were really about the nature of, uh, of poverty and trying to look at how it's best resolved. And we showed, for example, that even during a time of growth, a long period of growth, uh, that there were nonetheless a block of people, four million plus people, who were on out-of-work benefits, many for more than ten years. Levels of family breakdown that were high and growing, and one of the highest levels of personal debt in Western Europe, and one of the highest rates uh, as well of family breakup. And that isn't to say there was no hope in many of these disadvantaged areas there is. Uh, family futures, I thought, in reading it, makes it clear that even on our most deprived estates, there are large numbers of families who work hard, care about their children's education, and play a huge role in their local communities, with some real progress being made. I've seen many of that myself, and I, and I can recognize that from the book. But I don't think we can escape from some of the, <coughs> the basic facts that the study, I thought, uh, did highlight and reveal. Uh, the disproportionate incidence of poor health in the poorest neighborhoods. The repeated complaint about a lack of things for young people to do, often leading to youth misbehavior, a lack of respect for others, and crime, and the constant challenge of low skills and persistent unemployment, often passing down now through generations. So let's just take one of those issues, the issue of crime. And while those taking part in the study saw some progress on crime, I thought they were clear in the book that the challenges they continue to face had a disproportionately big impact on people's lives. I was fascinated, really, when I read uh, the following extract, uh, and it was from Allen in West City, a neighborhood in inner-city London. And he said, and I quote from the book, living here on a day-to-day -day basis, 
You're trying to build a community on our little estate of 85 homes, and all we get is people moved here whom the council are getting off their list, whether they're coming out of prison or drug users or mental health issues. They get dumped on the estate with next to no support and often cause a nightmare for everybody else. You only need one crack house for everybody's lives to be a nightmare. You only need one nuisance neighbour who just doesn't give a regard for anyone else, whether it's loud music at night or whatever. As, <coughs> as he indicates, the majority of those living on the estate were law-abiding families who played by the rules, but it only took a couple of families to go off the rails to make everyone else's lives a misery. Seemingly minor or localised cases of crime or antisocial behaviour can have, as I think the report showed, a multiple negative effect uh, in these areas. And let's just take street gangs, an area and an issue uh, that <coughs> just recently has uh, uh, we've been forced the government to look more carefully at. Gangs may, not, may only be, uh, in many cases, a minority, obviously, in their own community. But uh, they have a disproportionately large effect <coughs> on the lives of those around them. Uh, they are a product of social breakdown, as the work that I was doing uh, at the centre uh, through their Dying to Belong report showed, uh, and the work that we've done in Waltham Forest with the council in trying to turn them around. So they are a product of their own uh, social breakdown, but they in turn further that process of breakdown by creating no-go areas that make impossible the very things that could help deprive neighbourhoods to rejuvenate stable families, strong businesses uh, and community action. And as Family Futures finds, uh, parents were clearly worried by the sense that their streets could be taken over uh, by guns and gangs, an incredibly destructive environment in which to bring up uh, a young child. But perhaps the biggest challenge of all comes from the fact that these social problems persisted even during that period of unprecedented growth. The UK economy created uh, a significant number of jobs in the period leading up to the recession, with employment levels up by some two or just over two million. Yet huge numbers of those on benefits were unable, it seems, to take advantage of many of those jobs. Businesses looked elsewhere, bringing in what they said were keener and more willing workers from abroad, with nearly half the rise of employment accounted for uh, by foreign nationals. Of course, things are even tougher now. Resources are incredibly tight, and we have a real challenge in the labour market. But at the same time, we see on our TV screens every day the consequence for countries that obviously fail to get to grips with those problems, economic problems of the debt and the deficits. We shouldn't also forget uh, that other countries like Italy uh, had lower borrowing costs than us uh, back in April last year. Uh, they are now three times higher. So these things are interlinked, uh, interlinked uh, um, just from social through to the economy. But it isn't all about the economy. August riots were a reminder if any were needed, that those suffocating social problems I spoke about before are still alive and well. So this brings me really to family futures and the lessons I hope it can teach us about how we respond to the kind of challenges faced by families in troubled neighbourhoods. Let me start with the question of poverty. Reading family futures reminded me of an issue we found time and again uh, when we were doing the studies at the CSJ, namely that poverty is more than just income alone. The whole debate <coughs> around poverty in the UK is constructed around the relative income measure set at 60% of median income. <coughs> if you sit just below the line, you are said to be poor. If you sit just above it, you are not. But we should remember that levels of family income are just an approximate and by no means perfect measure of family well-being. 
And what do we know about the things that really improve that well-being? It's the kind of issues mentioned in family futures, better health, lower crime and lower fear of crime, work, a stronger sense of community. This isn't to say that money isn't important. Of course it is. I'm not going to stand here and say that those interviewed by Family Futures would not have wanted, needed, or even required higher incomes. But I do believe that increased income and increased well-being don't always follow on the same track. Take a family headed by a drug addict or someone with a gambling addiction. Increase the parents' income and the chances are they will spend that money on furthering their habit and not on their children. According to the relative income poverty figures, they might be above the line, but by any reasonable measure of long-term life chances, they would be stuck firmly below. Or take, for example, the family where no one has ever worked, a couple of two or three generations. Increase their benefit income while taking no other proactive action, and you push the family further into dependency, only increasing the chance that their child will follow that same path as an adult. So while income is important, we should be clear that the source of that income can have very different effects. Income through benefits maintains people on a low income, whereas income gained through work can transform lives. Of course, for some people, such as those with severe disabilities, income from welfare system must and will always play a vital role, and rightly so. But money can never be the whole story, as it ignores so many other indicators of well-being. So this is an important conclusion but we need to know what this really means in practice. My concern is that while we know what direction of travel is needed, we may be distant to repeat the failures of the past if we are not prepared to think much harder about this poverty challenge. The public debate on poverty is still overwhelmingly focused on narrow relative income measure. And this focus... <clears throat> this this is an important conclusion this is an important conclusion but what we need to know is what it Excuse means me. in practice I think we would like to hear everybody's views by the end of the evening we can't hear everybody's views if more than one person <coughs> is talking at once you will, you will have an opportunity later the audience would like to hear what all three of our speakers have got to say, one of whom who has travelled all the way from New York to be here. I think we'd be very grateful if you waited, made your point at, uh, after they've spoken, then we can hear what you've got to say, we won't miss the point, and we won't miss what our other speakers have got to say either. So if you'd like, if you'd let us please continue, <coughs> there will be an opportunity at the end of this, which Mr Duncan Smith and our other speakers will be staying for, and will respond to the points you want to make. So please continue. Thank you. This uh, comment that I've made earlier on is an important conclusion, but we need to know what it actually means in practice. My concern is that while we know what direction of travel is needed, we may be destined to repeat the failures of the past if we are not prepared to think much harder about that poverty challenge. The public debate on poverty is still overwhelmingly focused on the narrow, narrow relative income measure. And this focus drives a number of perverse incentives in the way that governments have approached policy. First, is an incentive to move people who are just below the line to just above it, as this can prove the simplest and cheapest way to hit those poverty targets. We find this is borne out in some of the figures which suggest that something like half of parental exits from poverty are to just above the income line. This has been called the poverty plus a pound approach, 
doing enough to keep the poverty figures moving in the right direction, but without really changing anyone's lives. Meanwhile, those at the very bottom risk being left behind, <clears throat> too far from the line for anyone to bother trying to lift them out. So perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that income inequality reached an all-time high uh, by uh, 2010. Second, there is an incentive for governments to focus on lifting income through higher welfare payments, particularly through those aimed at children. This is helpful in the public presentation of government policy because forecasts of future poverty trends rely mainly on changes in the tax and benefit system. But as I've already explained, this approach is unlikely to make a real difference to outcomes. And again we find this perverse incentive borne out in the figures. From 1998 to 2010, the likelihood of being in relative poverty declined 1.5 times faster for children living in workless families than for children living in families where somebody worked. <clears throat> this is an expensive approach and it looks, I think, to have failed. Though some progress has been made on poverty, <coughs> the last government, even the last government for their huge transfers, was set to miss their own targets by a wide margin, having already missed the interim targets. We could continue to just play a sort of party political game on this, arguing about who it has who has the better strategy, or we could have a more forward-thinking debate about how we can do more to promote the life chances approach and one not so narrowly focused just on income alone. It's interesting to see that the <coughs> Joseph Roundtree Foundation today has sparked off this debate in their report. Though we might not agree with everything we each have to say, I think there are a couple of quite important points here. First, they have argued that the focus on poverty has been too centred on the child alone to the detriment of other groups in society. You cannot somehow pull a child apart from its family. A child's well-being is fundamentally linked to the well-being of its family, and nor can we ignore the plight of working-age poverty. Second, they warn against the risk of focusing too much on the social security system to lift people out of poverty. I think the social security system can be a critical tool, and I will touch on the universal credit in more detail in a moment. But I agree with the Joseph Rowntree Foundation that simply pulling people out of the poverty with increased welfare payments is a dangerous and ineffective strategy alone. So we need to change, I hope, the terms of the debate. Government can, and does, do plenty of things that are likely to impact on poverty levels in the future with their effect on life chances. But these are too often the kind of dynamic changes that it is much more difficult to measure. Take, for example, the fairness premium worth about £7.2 billion, which the government has introduced to support the poorest in the early years and at the very start of their education. And this is a, a, a large investment by any government in changing children's lives with the potential to completely alter perhaps a child's future. With the right support, a child who is destined for a lifetime on benefits could be put to an entirely different track, one which sees them move into fulfilling and even sustainable work. In doing so, they may well move out of poverty. But because we can't predict the effect on income in the future, this is not given any credit as a poverty-fighting measure. Or take relationship support, to which the government, the governments had committed and will commit in the coming years. It may be that this investment has a huge impact on a number of children's lives, helping their families stay strong and stable, and so providing a stable and loving environment in which to grow up. But forecasting how this will impact on a child's income in the future is again extremely difficult. We find the same thing with health visitors. The government's committed to increasing those by 4,200. And we know health visitors have been found to play an incredibly important role 
in helping families to cope and provide a stable environment for young children. Yet once again, we don't do enough really to assess the impact of this investment on a family's life in the long run. So I believe that we must look more closely at how we are measuring the impact of these interventions and continue to push a debate about these wider measures of poverty. So in a sense, a process has started here already. Frank Field's work on life chances. Uh, a good friend and colleague, Graham Allen from the Labour Party, his report on early intervention and the small but significant growth of the social investment market. All this work is starting to change the way we look at the issue of poverty and life change. We want to build a body of knowledge about what works and what doesn't. This could provide the incentive for even private investors to put their money into this agenda, and in doing so, releasing more money into life change than just government alone. Also, a side effect of that kind of uh, private investment, uh, but nonetheless a powerful social driver, <coughs> will be the way such investment can re-engage uh, those businesses in the top end of society with those at the bottom. <clears throat> reviving that sense of shared community which has been missing, I think, uh, and complained about quite legitimately for too long. And I think this speaks to the experience of riots as well. First, the need to re-engage the top and bottom society, ending the feeling of disenfranchisement in many of our neighbourhoods, but also in getting to grips with the culture of dependency. We need to end the feeling of entitlement that also seems to drive so much of what we saw in August. And by focusing on income levels rather than life chances, we have, in a sense, created pockets of our society where too many know only about the money rather than what is earned, and so too easily prepared uh, to take that rather than to earn it. But if we are to understand which policies actually change lives and will actually start to turn this culture around, we have to understand the issue that we're dealing with. And that's why studies <clears throat> like Family Futures are so valuable. I think they provide an opportunity to hear testimony from people uh, in troubled neighbourhoods about what really matters to them. And I wanted to touch on one or two areas briefly. First, the experience of those in the study who were claiming tax credits. The introduction of it was based on a sound principle. Yet the way they were designed too often meant that these incentives were too often perverse or almost incomprehensible for those who were in receipt of them. As Family Futures makes clear, the dominant problem for families was having to rely on a badly organized system that created confusion and uncertainty. One person who uh, they interviewed was even willing to make a claim, and I quote, even if I'm entitled, I don't want the hassle, I just put the form in the bin. Others wanted to move into work but felt paralyzed by the complexity of the system, and I quote again, I want to work but I don't know how the benefit system works. Before they award working families tax credit, you have to deal with accountants. It's really confusing. I want to work, but I'm worried I'll be in an even worse situation. It's clear then that this uh, was a government project with sound principles, one not built around what people could see or who it was aimed to help. So the aim that I've come in to try and do, uh, first of all, is to build a system that replicates the positive points of tax credits, but one that is simpler to understand, fits around the hours that people want to and need to work, and doesn't create such significant perceived risks from moving into work. The system we're building is the universal credit, a simpler payment that is withdrawn at a clear and consistent rate as people move into work. Key to this is something called the real-time information system, meaning that we'll receive information directly from employers about what people are actually earning and translate that into an accurate and up-to-date payment. 
So I believe the universal credit should start to make a difference to some of those families and some of those issues which come out so strongly in family futures. In making a system simpler, in making it value work more than is valued at the moment, in giving people the opportunity to find the hours of work that they need as they rebuild uh, towards full-time work, uh, this will help hugely change and eradicate elements of in-work poverty. But this book also presents something of a challenge uh, to this government or to any government, for its findings <coughs> suggest that the changes that make a real difference to people's lives aren't just the big projects, they're also the seemingly little ones, whether it be fixing broken streetlights, making repairs to the community park, or fixing that broken pavement slab that stops people pushing their prams down the street. This comes out clearly in the later chapters of the book, which describe how residents worried about their one-off nature of big regeneration programs and favoured more low-level responsive investments and more gradual improvements. Of course, there's a lot to talk about in big capital projects at the moment, and the government's talking hugely about that, and I guess rightly so in the economic environment. But let's, we shouldn't, as politicians or even as individuals, not assume that only big can be beautiful. Let me take you back to New York in the mid-1990s. Rudy Giuliani had just appointed a new police commission of Bill Bratton. His approach was different. Together with Giuliani, he pioneered work on the broken windows theory, the idea that what starts as low-level degradation, faulty streetlights, littering broken windows, is the beginning of a continuum to much more serious antisocial behavior and crime. If people in the area get the sense that others don't care enough about the local environment, then the chances are that no one will care at all. And we hear this kind of testimony from parents and family futures, and I like to quote again, it gets me down seeing so many derelict buildings and uncaring for things. The block getting emptier and crying out to be vandalized. And a mother who felt strongly about something apparently as small as a McDonald's carton. And I quote again, before this estate was built, she said, it was all old houses, terraces, but people were spotless. They'd come out and scrub the hole. You know, a whole bucket of water would go down on the front path and down onto the pavement. They didn't have a lot of money, but they were very clean. You didn't see rubbish on the street. Perhaps it's because there wasn't a McDonald's about at that point, she said. I think people need to be a little bit more caring about their environment, wherever it is, you know. It doesn't mean to say they can throw a McDonald's carton or leave their rubbish behind. I thought for all the small focus, that was a very powerful statement. And on the other hand, if you get in there early and pick up that McDonald's carton or fix that window before it can impact on people's behavior, then you can potentially have a huge impact on the local environment, disproportionately. And we talk a lot about early intervention, but when it comes to our youngest children, Perhaps we should be saying more about early intervention for our communities too. But as with early intervention for children, this is an agenda that is best when driven again at a local level. That's why the localism agenda, I think, is very important. It's why we should try to push power out, and as I believe we are, not just to local authorities, but also to voluntary and community organizations. And we try to harness this local expertise in the work program, where hundreds of voluntary and community sector organizations will be delivering intensive help to get people back to work. And we're also working to turn around the lives of some of the country's most troubled families, again working with local authorities and the voluntary sector to drive this form at a local level. These are organizations that see people for who they are, not just as numbers on a spreadsheet or as a box to be ticked, but as human beings. They can be visualized, they can be remembered, and they can be seen. So let me just finish by repeating some of the key principles I think need to underpin real change for families in troubled neighborhoods. First, we need a proper debate on poverty based around life change rather than just maintenance. 
And second, we need to understand what really matters to people. A government can design programs of support that fit their aspirations and work with the grain of their lives. In short, humanizing government and making small that which is often too big. And whether to be simplifying the welfare system or making the small changes to local area that make real difference, I think we owe it to those in our poorest communities, all of us to do better. And that, I guess, is the challenge really of government and the challenge of this generation. Thank you. Um, well, there was, um, there was a lot in that talk, and so now there's the temptation to, um, you know, ditch my PowerPoints and respond to the points in the talk, but I'm hoping there'll be time in the discussion section at the end because um, you've raised a number of um, important points that um, I'd be really interested in discussing, particularly the, the questions around measurement of poverty and, um, and poverty and how it relates to life chances. So I think that'll, that'll be a good discussion. Um, what, what I'd like to talk about, because it's um, in some ways a tougher question and one um, that where the answers are less obvious to me, uh, is how we prevent youth problems. Uh, so that's the challenge that I'm taking up, uh, prompted by uh, Anne's splendid book, but also uh, responding to uh, some of the points that the Secretary of State raised in his talk. So. Um, you know, the events of last summer uh, really put a spotlight on a set of youth problems that have existed for some time, um, and they share some common causes and risk factors. So what I'd like to talk about is what we can do to prevent youth problems, drawing on the science of prevention. And so I've got three bottom line messages. One is that families and communities really can't do it all. Uh, second, there's a role for what I'll call primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention. And I'm going to emphasize school and family-based interventions to address low skills as being particularly important. And they're not always the first thing that we talk about when we talk about crime and youth problems, so that's why I particularly wanted to talk about it tonight. Okay, so there were the riots last August. They, um, I was here last August, and they certainly caught all of our attention. Um, and we now have some statistics that are coming out on, you know, it's not all the youth who are involved, it's a sample of youth who are involved, it's the youth who have been apprehended and brought into the courts. But um, it's very striking what the characteristics of these youth are. So two-thirds have special education needs, half didn't achieve level four in English or maths, 36% had been excluded from school in the past year, 30% were persistent absentees, only 11% had five good GCSEs, including English and maths. So these are kids who were in trouble long before the riots. And um, these problems are not unique and they're not new. So these problems are familiar to me in the US, it's not just the UK, but uh, here as well you have high levels of other youth problems, uh, youth leaving school without adequate skills, antisocial behavior, substance use, teen pregnancy, and youth who are persistently not in education or employment. So, so why do youth engage in problem behavior? What are the risk factors? Well, you know, we know there's a host of risk factors at all these different levels, but particularly important are poor academic skills and poor social emotional behavioral skills. 
Um, and these things start early in life. And then the risk is heightened during adolescence. We know a lot about what happens developmentally during adolescence. And there are brain changes that really heighten teenagers' sensitivity to risk and reward, especially when peers are around. And they just get supercharged. They want to take up these challenges. And unfortunately, the typical adolescent doesn't have the cognitive control to go alongside that. So they're supercharged, they're pursuing the excitement, and they don't yet have the limit setting and the self-regulation. So especially for these kids who don't have the skills, uh, this is a risky time. So even the best of adolescents, and you know, and I have one at home, um, are impulsive and influenced by peers and short-term rewards, but especially kids who have poor skills, and it's both the academic and the social skills, they're really at risk. So if we're going to prevent problem behavior, we have to help these high-risk youth make better decisions. And there's two ways of going about it. And it's not an either-or, it's both. On the one hand, we have to strengthen their skills and capacities. We have to boost up their skills because they don't have them. And on the other side, we have to change the external rewards and the controls. So things like types of policing, community wardens. So I'm not going to talk about the external controls. I'm going to talk about the the skills and capacity side, but obviously both are important. Um, so we hear in Family Futures uh, how concerned they are about crime and youth disorder, and we hear that they can't do it all. Um, they're asking for support, and they say very clearly that they feel increasingly well supported in the early years by programs like Sure Start and the NHS. They have lots of positive things to say about their local health services. Um, and by primary schools. So parents in these areas are really pretty happy with the primary schools and the changes they've seen, but they feel like it all falls apart when their kids hit secondary school. Their kids are having more problems and the schools don't want to know about it, would be a paraphrase of many quotes from the book. Um, so uh, what do we know about the science of prevention? Uh, well, public health and other disciplines distinguish between three different levels of prevention. So primary or universal prevention is offered to everybody. These are things we think are good for everybody. Uh, this could be child benefit, this could be public schools, this could be the National Health Service. It doesn't have to do with primary age, it's just universal. Uh, secondary or selective is targeting high-risk individuals or areas. So when the Secretary of State talks about early intervention or when Graham Allen talks about early intervention, they're talking about secondary intervention in the way that I'm using the term. Finding people or areas that are high risk and intervening early. Not necessarily early in life, it could be, but early in terms of picking them out before they get into the problem behavior. And then there's tertiary, people who've already offended or engaged in problem behavior. So the UK is currently working on all three levels. Uh, there's actually a lot going on, and I bet I've missed some stuff, but I've actually been working very hard the last month or so uh, to figure out everything that's going on. There's a lot going on already at the primary level, obviously, at the secondary level. Secondary in this sense meaning we're targeting people who are high risk. So. Um, uh, it, the expansion of the nurse-family partnership, the expansion of health visiting would be an example of that. The expansion of the child care for low-income two-year-olds. So not only is the universal entitlement of child care for three- and four-year-olds being maintained, but it's being extended to disadvantaged two-year-olds. Um, and then the tertiary level, uh, programs for youth who have already offended. But what I'd like to em emphasize is that there's even more that could be done 
in terms of school and family-based secondary prevention for the at-risk youth. And I'm, I'm focusing again on things that would improve skills. So these kids come into school already with very poor, poor skills. Uh, I've done other work looking at school readiness and SES gradients and school readiness. Kids come to school from poor areas already lagging very far behind in both academic skills and social skills. We know who these kids are, and there are effective programs that will improve academic skills. Um, the ones that I've asterisked are already being piloted or implemented in some areas in the UK. So success for all, every kid can succeed. We have these very intensive programs in the states, KIPP, the Harlem Children's Zone. They believe every kid can, can succeed. They're raising academic skills across the board. Uh, remedial programs for youth with low skills, such as reading recovery, computer-assisted instruction, giving kids incentives, very controversial, you know, actually paying kids to read books, paying kids to do their homework, it works. So, you know, we may not like the messages that are embodied in that, but kids respond to incentives just like the rest of us. And then there's a host of interventions that improve kids' social, emotional, and behavioral skills. So these are, these are interventions that get at these um, uh, ineffective, dysfunctional social approaches that some of these kids have to the world. If you challenge me, you're disrespecting me, and so the right approach is for me to escalate the situation would be an example of, of those sort of dysfunctional skills. And so there are child skills training courses that um, teach kids different ways of being a man, something that the Chicago Crime Lab is doing in the Chicago schools, and also child and parent skills training. Parents want to help their kids, and they're asking for help, managing kids' behavior, teaching kids different skills. And so these are interventions that work with parents and families. And then there's also quite a bit of uh, promising evidence around mentorship programs. Again, focused on these skills for kids. So um, just, to, just to conclude, um, Family Futures tells us that families want better outcomes for their children and their teens, but they also say they need more support. Uh, they can't do it all on their own. Uh, so there's a role for all three types of, in, of prevention to ensure that we identify high-risk youth early and they get the appropriate preventive services. And I've really tried to emphasize these school and family-based secondary prevention programs that address the, the low skills and it's both academic and social-emotional skills. And the way I look at it is this is a win-win. So um, if we can improve kids' skills, both the academic skills and the social and emotional skills, it's going to improve their school attainment and achievement. So that's a win in terms of their future employability. And it's a win in terms of the spillover effects of other kids. So you have one disruptive kid in the classroom or the school, it disrupts everybody's learning. So this is a big win-win. And it will also lead to reductions in crime and other youth problems. So uh, I'll leave it with that, and I look forward to the rest of the discussion. Jane had lots of references. Oh, and lots of slides as well. Where am I? Okay, so I'm going to talk people through the themes of the Family Futures study, which was a huge long study, very quickly. But I'm going to try and illustrate what I'm saying 
by flashing up quotes from the families. Now, obviously, we had maybe 80,000 quotes collected by the end of this study. There is absolutely no way that what's in Family Futures is totally representative, but certainly what I'm going to show you isn't. I've simply used some of the starkest quotes to try and illustrate some points that I think are really important. So just starting, I think that we can understand the problems of poor areas much better if we talk to the families, and that's what we did. Over 10 years, we had the privilege to be funded to talk to 200 families in four low-income areas. Through a period of really significant change, and not just government change, there was mass migration into these areas. There was a huge change in the school population. There were big housing changes, and there were also lots of efforts to help. So families talked a lot about the kind of problems they faced, but also the kind of benefits they saw in living in the areas they did. These areas came from 150 years of government intervention. It's a long, long thing that governments have been doing, with historic slums being cleared and upgraded, with 10,000 large council estates being built over an 80-year period, starting in about 1880. Um, in fact, a 100-year period, if I think about it, although most during a kind of pre- and post-war fever. <coughs> big, big losses of industrial jobs, which had been the rationale for building many of these estates, high population turnover and immigration, um, with low income and low skills getting locked together as the rationale for those workforces disappeared and becoming self-reinforcing. No government has cracked breaking that logjam. And it's as serious in the east end of London, very close to a huge job market, as it is in the north, a long way from it. And because of that, social problems multiply, families can't afford better areas, and we end up with big problems. So families say it's tough to bring up children in difficult areas, there's too little for their children to do, the strong sense of communities has been lost, there's not enough to bring the children together, and there are too many strangers. But families have this top priority. They want family and friends nearby, they want people they can call on, they want support with child-related problems, as both Jane and um, the Secretary of State mentioned particularly with child-related problems, so Shore Start and schools are massively, disproportionately important to these families. Desperately, they want play space and community spaces, because if young people can't let off steam, even from a very small age, there'll be trouble. And if you don't have activity for teenagers, then you'll have really bad trouble. So when I visited Broadwater Farm a couple of weeks ago, I was told about a project they were doing there called Off the Street, Less Heat and you can see what that was about. Um, so, why are families so worried about their children in these areas? I'd say one of their top, top worries is what's going to happen to their children as they become young people. There isn't an obvious transition for families with very low educational backgrounds, with poor skills, who don't see their children progressing into college. There's no natural transition pro uh, point. And so getting into trouble becomes much more likely. At the same time, it's a scary environment, so you don't let your children out, so your children aren't schooled in handling neighbourhood problems because it would be too dangerous. So the streets are unsafe, and there's traffic, there's strangers, there's always the threat of trouble. And above all, parents have this worry. 
that they might lose control. So you've got this parenting dilemma as children cross over into young adulthood where the parent has to let them go. They simply cannot be contained in crowded small flats. I can't remember whether it's where somewhere I've got a quote about caged children and that's really probably the starkest quote <coughs> on that. But, but it is a really terrible transition for parents to have to try and make with their young people when there isn't the kind of hand-holding that's needed and there is no easy way to do it. So young people are a really special worry because they've got irrepressible energy, because they can't be contained in small flats, and that particularly applies to East London in the north. Houses and gardens were much more common. Uh, peer pressure is very strong, with violence, drugs, and bad example being really all pervasive, and parents very commonly said, well, it's not our kids, it's not our block, it's something out there, and that happened a lot in the riots, that it was outsiders coming in and causing trouble. Um, with too few constructive outlets, and a very, very wobbly bridge to work, and obviously that bridge has got a lot, a lot wobblier. And we really shouldn't underestimate any opportunity that kids could possibly take up to cross over that bridge into work, particularly if they haven't done very well because the college path is too inaccessible. And so because of all that, you've got this bubbling sense of disorder or threat of disorder. So what about jobs? Well, uh, the Secretary of State referred to the problematic tax credits. I really would like to stress that in spite of those problems, tax credits levered many of our families over into work and without them, as you can see from the quotes, they wouldn't have taken it up. So I think stressing that it's a positive idea to lever people into work but accepting that very, very large state bureaucracies find it difficult uh, to do it um, is, is really tricky. And particularly in poor areas, whereas economic decline um, has accelerated with the, with the overall job shrinkage. So in the period when we were talking to families, it was all going in the opposite direction. And now, of course, it, it's going back. Um, and the problem is that skills go with jobs, so people with low skills find it hard to access work. But then when people do access work, they start to do better. If they lose work or can't get into it again, then their skills decline again. And so there are these really dislocated lives in poor communities where work is so fragile. And we do have lots of models of work and training that people came to rely on and that we really must hold on to, particularly this low-level training, this training that gets very, very little recognition either by employers or in the wider job market, but that actually builds that little bit of confidence to make people. So if you look at the quotes on the training, it's very low-level training, but it made the people feel more confident to bat for something better. So what should we do about jobs? I mean, in this current climate, I certainly don't have a solution, but we do know that some things would help very low-income people stand a better chance, and particularly very uh, young people from very low-income families. First of all, we should push basic skills, but we have to realise that getting troubled kids back into the classroom to do basic skills courses simply doesn't work. It works for a very few, and for most it fails, whereas using practical tasks 
and outdoor activities to accelerate young people's willingness to learn very, very simple things like the use of tools um, and, and, and building techniques and so on actually makes a big difference. And if you expanded work experience, again, even very basic work experience in, in um, local employment bases for mid-teens, and this really has to be not paid work, it's work experience, how valuable is that to well-off young people who are getting a good education when they start to track towards work massively. So, of course, it's going to be as valuable for poorly educated children from poor families. And on the whole, it's just not offered. It's one of the things the parents criticise. So you need small steps to learning and small steps to work and pushing the idea that when you leave school, you're not ready necessarily to carry the full load of a job and therefore have apprenticeships with low-level accreditation moving you up the line. I've got brilliant examples that I haven't got time to tell you about of kids who left school severely dyslexic, functionally illiterate, not being able to get work for a year or two, getting eventually pushed into very low-level shelf-stacking jobs um, in a local supermarket and now being trained actually as, as, a, as a butcher and a chef by Waitrose. <coughs> Ten years later, that's how long it took. It's just amazing. So, so hooking employers, and this is something where maybe the Conservatives should be much, much more active. You're good on employers. And, and I think hooking employers into driving the learning agenda for this low-level uh, skill development would be really crucial to breaking the logjam of low skills and low confidence. On the other hand, uh, the previous government was pretty good at something that um, Tim Brighouse, the big educational academic, termed paraprofessional jobs, teaching assistants, health assistants, um, uh, park wardens, street wardens, um, people who were doing a social job with a, a, an actual practical physical function. So you didn't need a very high level of skill other than that you needed the very things that Jane said. You needed basic skills and you needed a social um, communication skill that nobody has bothered to share um, when you're on the outside. And in addition, you need lots of incentives and recognition. I didn't think of paying kids to read or paying youth to do basic skills, but you do need to give people, young people particularly, a strong sense of reward. And so some cash incentives, I mean, we used to give kids cans of Coca-Cola for picking up rubbish, um, <laughs> and that was good enough. But whether you know, it would still work, I'm not quite sure. But there are things that you can do at a, a very basic level to actually say thank you for actually moving forward. It does help us all if, if um, young people move, move forward. And it also starts to foster cooperation and teamwork. So, just to end, I'd like to tell you what parents would do to improve their neighbourhoods if they were given the chance. Top number one, virtually 100% more for children and young people. Much as is being done, and you go to hundreds of organisations and you think, my God, there can't be more young people. There are so many excluded young people. So more for children and young people. More physical improvement at the levels, preferably, that the Secretary of State was referring to. And that is a genuine report from families. It's not that they don't like the high drama, like, for example, the Excel Centre in, um, in the East Docks. But 
what really makes a difference to them is their streets feeling safe because they're clean and free from glass and their play equipment not being break, broken and when it does get broken being mended and then more facilities general that don't cost very much so three kids playing football every week at a pound a kid is unaffordable for one of our mothers the children have to take it in turns going to football how stupid is that um, and then more tackling crime prevention um, and f making places feel more secure. So, so what next? Well, the summer riots were a shock. The Economist reported that there were underlying social causes. We shouldn't take that lightly. There was horror within communities, but there was also help, instant help within communities. Same people sometimes, or at least same families, certainly. And in a current climate, not just in the UK, but across Europe, across the US, across the developed world, major instabilities and uncertainties, then you are bound to get a turbulent social environment. We should really be able to recognize that. So a brilliant book that came out in the mid-90s, Youth Violence in a Winner-Loser Culture, I think could really tell us a lot about the winner-loser culture that we're in today, where there are no easy answers and where we need micro actions, they can only be micro because the scale of the problem is so huge, across about 100,000 marginal communities in Europe. <coughs> so we're not on our own in this. We've got <coughs> 10,000 very deprived um, council estates, apart from other areas that are quite difficult, um, and we're not so different from what's going on in other countries. We should learn by experience. Most importantly, we should learn by doing. There's a lot to do. I think we should get on with it. Thank you. Um, thanks to all three of our speakers. We do have time for questions and answers. I'm going to take Still questions, if, if I might, in um, groups of three and then give our speakers a chance to respond. There are roving microphones. Um, so there is somebody in the front row there on the left. Um, there is a lady in about the third row from the back on the right up there. Um, and there's a gentleman back, back from here. So um, could I appeal to you, there are many people I know who want to say something. Could you keep your points um, quite short? please, and, um, and then that will give time for the speakers to respond to them, please. Okay, this, uh, this question... Could you say who you are yeah. and where you're from? Okay, uh, my name's uh, Owen Davis, I'm from uh, the LSE, I'm a student here. This question is for the Secretary of State. Um, in talking about social mobility, which I know is a key uh, issue for the, the coalition government, um, it has been shown that many people living in poverty are sort of aware of the, acutely aware of the stigma attached to their position, um, which is perpetuated through state and through the media and through society more generally. I was wondering if considering uh, your concern for social mobility, whether you'd, um, you were taking into account the uh, draining psychological effects that um, could be felt by people living in poverty as uh, a way that would be an obstacle to them uh, you know, becoming more mobile in society. And uh, what, if anything, has been done to, to address this problem? Okay. Thank you very much. And then the lady at the back. Uh, two very brief questions. Um, one on the theme of um, uh, income, mobili well, income mobility and getting out of poverty through work and linking that with what 
Anne was saying, Professor Power was saying uh, in, about involving employers. Actually, how jobs are structured matters. Uh, stocking shelves doesn't, doesn't get you out of poverty, but if the work is organized in another way, you might get into order stuff on the Mondays and, uh, and stocking shelves on, uh, on the Tuesdays. Other countries do better than, uh, than the UK does. Germany is one of those, for example, not too much lately. So maybe private sector and employers should be involved and more should be done in terms of trying to regulate how jobs are organized for them to be actually satisfying and actually paying enough. And the second point was about... Quite quickly, please. Very much quickly. Um, outcome related. These things take time to come up and a lot of money is needed for research to be precise and to to follow families for a long, for a long time <coughs> and to actually measure the variety of outcomes. So there, there has to be a lot of uh, care and attention in actually both funding that research and actually being uh, very transparent in picking up the, the funding that, uh, that come out of research done around, around these things. And be patient in terms of uh, waiting for things actually to, to come up. Okay, so there's a plea for researchers to be well-funded and for people who use our research to be patient while we spend a long time doing it. Um, so. uh, my name is Tim Gill. I'm a, a writer and researcher, and uh, my interest is in, I suppose, the way childhood is changing and children's relationship with the people and places around them. And it's taking a point of Anne's and, and putting it to the Secretary of State and, and Professor Volfogel. I think, Anne, from what came from your presentation and, and your other work is... The value of public space and, and the importance for families of, of good public space in neighbourhoods. And if I could paraphrase very, perhaps a little, you're saying that, that some of the things that are happening around young people are not so much around a sort of Lord of the Fly syndrome, so much as a kind of cabin fever syndrome, that because children aren't getting the chance to get out and about in neighbourhoods when they're younger, when they get up and get older, they're struggling. And, and so the, the question to the Secretary of State and to Professor Wolfhogel is is what more can governments and public bodies be doing around the sort of very basic local improvements to, uh, to create neighbourhoods that people care about and want to be spending time in and are happy to let their children um, be spending time in. Thank you. Right. Thank you very much. Um, so we have um, three different areas there. Um, issues around stigma, <coughs> um, which is obviously something that there is an interaction between the way in which people's lives are covered and portrayed in the media and indeed by politicians and the way people feel about their lives, about how jobs are structured by employers and how they may or may not help people move on from where they start, and about the value of public space and moving away from the syndrome of battery children, uh, which I think Anne was referring to. So let me start and then I'll work my way. <coughs> yeah, I... Um I thought the first and the second one were mostly for me and the other one was more accurate, but I'm happy to take... On the social mobility point, um, I think it was Owen Davison's speaking earlier on, I can't see there, sorry, I beg your pardon. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. I think this is, uh, this is a big problem. How do you get someone, for example, that has comes from a family where maybe there's two generations or even three generations where people haven't been in work, and there are some estates where you will find some of that. I was in Bermondsey not so long ago, and a place that was built for the docks, but the docks moved and there was almost this kind of sense that there was no work and that's cascaded down two and in some cases three generations and the sense that 
Therefore, the idea of work is not part particularly of their lives and they don't see anybody do it and often don't have any role models that do it. So breaking down that, giving them a sense that they can do something, partly because they may have failed through the school system, they left the school system often early. I mean, there's a big debate for the moment about you know, getting kids to leave when they're 17 or 18 years old, and I think one of the biggest problems that I face is actually getting kids to stay on beyond about 13 or 14 in some of these areas because they have no sense that this is a pathway out. So <clears throat> there is a huge issue through schooling trying to build it up, but after schooling, one of the projects that we've set up, which is quite important, uh, is the work programme, and that's bringing in the private and the voluntary sector. And the important bit about the voluntary sector is that the most difficult to place and get through into work uh, are going to be taken through programmes either to help with their mental health problems or particularly, for example, with learning disabilities or even just remedial education to give them a sense. And then into things like work experience. I think Anne talked about work experience. We're trying to increase the number of places. Now, uh, we'll pay for that two months and three months if they're offered a job. We found a huge... No, no, they don't actually. No, no, no. No, no, can I, can I just say that actually I will pay for them to go to work experience for a minimum of two months and a third month if the offer of an apprenticeship or something. And what we found with that, and I agree with Anne in this, this is quite, no, no, they don't. The work experience is paid for by me. I'm trying to finish this question off. <laughs> So that's trying to break down that psychological sense that I can't do anything because I don't know what to do, the point Anne made, which is I have nobody around me that tells me about work. I don't know what it's like. I don't think I'm capable. We have to kind of show them the work environment, get the work, the employer, to actually help them build through that some kind of basic skills, which is understanding what you do in the work, and give them a sense that they're just as capable as the next person, and then surround them later on with programs of improvement, remedial education, a help with some skilling, that kind of stuff, which we've got to inject into that process. There's more to be done there, but I, it, it is the key bit to getting people back to work who have been out of work for a long time. I, I actually agree with you on that. Um, and uh, on the uh, uh, Tim Gill, I think it was, the value of the public space, I think one of the big problems is that uh, too many, I, I think, of the estates that were built, the ones that Anne talked about uh, post-war, didn't value quite that there was a necessity for a kind of public space. I think it's something we can rectify. The second aspect, I think, is really important in trying to give local councils much more control over this, is that if you have a public space, what is too often remarked on is that those who would really use it find it quite a threatening environment because it gets taken over by people who don't want to use it for anything else and want to destroy it. So I think the police and community has a role in here to protect that space so that others can use the space and feel it's something that they have common ownership over and a right to be there. Too often, we've abandoned it. And I do agree, it's very important to make sure those areas are properly supported and police so that people can enter them. And if they're valued, I think that gives kids a chance to let off steam, which we would all expect to do. And, and the other one I'd say is much more sport than school. is absolutely critical for kids to let off steam while they're in school so they don't feel suppressed when they go home in the evening and full of energy and trying to find something to do. Could, could you very quickly come back to a point which um, Anne Howell raised and which our second question raised about the role of employers in this? Yeah. Um, Anne suggested that you have a relationship <coughs> with employers and that the role of employers and how they treat people as they're moving through can be crucial 
in, in moving on? And it is. What it's are you doing <coughs> well, on one thing I, I said earlier on, the work experience programme, we're going to expand it dramatically because it's actually proving to be quite a big hit with those who go on to it. And, and the key thing from there is pre-apprenticeships, uh, and those apprenticeships will be aimed hugely at only those who are unemployed. I, I'm, too often the apprenticeship programme gets recycled amongst people already in work. What we have to try and do is connect it to kids that are out of work and that gives them a start, so they get some kind of support to get ready for an apprenticeship, and then get employers to buy into the idea that they will give them an apprenticeship that gives proper studying, proper time in work, and to make it much easier for them to create that and support that financially. So I think that, that there are three phases to that, work experience, uh, the pre-apprenticeships, and the apprenticeship program to lock employers into a responsibility to try and give those kids from difficult backgrounds a much better chance and we are trying to put pressure on them, and absolutely right, we should do much more on this, but we have to drive employers to recognise that if they don't value those people who are at the moment in the most difficult situations, then all we do is keep on bringing more and more people from overseas to do the work which we've got to train people here to do, otherwise we have to support two groups of people and it doesn't make any sense. So it's a big issue, I recognise that, but I think those three stages will be critical to changing that. Thank you very much. Would you like to? I'd, I'd like to take some more questions, but could you add there were a couple of specific things <coughs> there? I think particularly about about public space and, and James. I mean, the, I guess on public space, I would broaden it to um, its public space and its access to broader participation in a number of things that families value for their for their kids, and that they often can't access, whether because the public space doesn't exist, the public space has been taken over by others, or because there's financial barriers. And um, you know, one of the things that I so admire in the multiple measures of poverty and deprivation that this country uses is that you can see that. There's, there's the measure of relative income poverty that the Secretary of State was referring to. There's also the measure of absolute poverty, and there's the measure of material deprivation. And um, I'm particularly a fan of the measure of material deprivation because you can see so clearly um, what families are struggling with on being able to access activities or items that we all agree that in a good society families should have. And you can also see that index is incredibly sensitive to economic fluctuations. So as families' incomes rise, you actually see material deprivation coming down. You see financial strain coming down. Um, I'm also a big fan of expenditure measures because you can see in expenditure data how families are spending additional income. Yeah. And in work I've done, families spend additional income on fresh fruit and vegetables, books and toys, uh, clothing and shoes for, for children. So you can see really clearly where these, where these benefits are going. Uh, so I, it's something that's really informed my, my work back in the United States. It's a lot more costly and complicated to have these measures. But I think if poverty is not just about income, if poverty is about broader life chances, and I fully agree with that, then you have to have these broader measures. So yes, it's also access to public space and a whole array of public goods. Now, there are a lot of people trying to get in. Uh, there's a gentleman in a stripy clover up at the back there. And then there are, can, can you share a microphone and each make a quick point? And then, and then the lady at the end of the row just had her hand up um, there. So we'll take you first. Okay. Um, Jason Wood from the Square Mile uh, Community Engagement Initiative at De Montfort University in Leicester. We're doing a lot of similar work and, and findings coming out from working intensively with a local neighbourhood over the period of two years. 
Um, I just wanted to pick up on the point on risk factors because there is actually a lot of uh, criticism of using risk factors to guide a preventative uh, approach to working. And I just wondered uh, whether you shared any of those criticisms and on what you felt about the emerging body of work around resilience, particularly in terms of young people and, and strengths-based mm -hmm. approaches. Um, so could you each make a very quick point and then share the microphone and then we'll get another person in before we come back again. Um, Caroline Thorpe from Inside Housing magazine. Um, I was just interested um, to ask the Secretary of State whether um, he was going to listen to calls for the £26,000 benefit cap to be raised for families with children specifically, which I know is an issue for some of the, the peers at the moment in the, as the Welfare Reform Bill goes through the Lords. Thank you. Um, Mary O'Regan, journalist. Um, it's kind of ironic that for um, the, the title is Families and Young People, but we, I don't think we've mentioned marriage once, and this is a question for the Secretary of State because a lot of the early um, work of the CG, CSG concentrated on you know, the value of helping young people, probably people like myself, um, who want to get married but don't want to be penalised financially, and also focusing on the value um, for long-term financial health of helping people to get married. So that's my question. Thank you. And if you can quickly run the microphone. Final one. Fusing uh, the welfare reform bill and the family friendly question. Um, part of the bill uh, plans to punish uh, families um, in social housing uh, with the new size criteria. And this will mean that any family who lets their teenagers, for example, have their own bedroom or um, separated parents who want to keep a bedroom to share the childcare um, of their children will face losing up to 25% of their housing benefit. And I'd just like to ask the Secretary of State how that fits in with this idea of the, what the bill is supposed to be about, which is helping families and, and getting people back to work. Okay, thank you for putting that so clearly. If you don't mind, I'll take you first in the next round. So if you'd like to wait, um, I'm sorry. I'm going to let this, if you don't mind, I'll let this overrun um, a few minutes because we started late. So um, if you could take those points and then yeah. we will come back to you next. Um, on the size criteria, uh, actually we are now discussing with a lot of groups, for example, I, I recognise uh, would-be foster carers, for example, have an issue here, uh, and so I'm talking to lots of groups. The key principle behind the idea is not a, a punishment, it's the, the mismatching at the moment where if you look at private housing, people, as they go through life, they upsize and then they downsize because, you know, they don't want to be in a bigger house. The problem with social housing is people get into a house and that's it. They sort of stick there because they don't move because they have risk moving, losing that housing right. So it's part of a whole series of measures to try and see if we can't get some more flexibility so that people can be a little more flexible about the size of house they use. And so the idea behind this is to try and to match the demand for some of that housing uh, with the requirements for size. I recognize so that's the principle behind it. Now, you, we can debate that. But there, I recognize we do need to, and we are talking to different groups about whether this actually is going to be too much of a penalty uh, and whether there's some modifications that we can make in that. That's the whole principle behind it. So it's trying to make it work as a principle rather than in any way uh, penalize people. And I'm in a series of discussions about how best that balances out. So I recognize the concerns. I genuinely do. The principle behind it is to try and match that mismatch in terms of size and see. I mean, one of the things I'm very keen to do, it's not my area directly, but I'm very keen to see us try and find a way to make social housing portable as an asset so people can move and not fear losing their house 
in one place or another. It's an area we're looking at hugely uh, to see whether they can move to different jobs without them fearing if they move, they have to leave their families behind when they do that kind of thing. Yeah, I recognize and we definitely understand the concerns about that. Um, I did talk about uh, support for families in difficulty, including married families, obviously, uh, when they face difficult problems and they face the likelihood or possibility of breakup. Uh, because obviously what we found is uh, where they get some support, which actually costs relatively very little, it often stabilizes families enormously and can help them then, by being stable, go on to produce and help produce uh, stable kids and takes the pressure off people looking at them. And uh, one of the areas I was looking at was the benefit systems couple penalty, which the universal credit will help with, which is to say to rebalance the incentive and disincentive with people staying together who are on low incomes. It, you know, it's not to say that we tell people what to do, quite the contrary, they should decide what they want to do, but it's that the balance of money they receive and at low levels of income it can make a huge effect, dictates actually the state's view about this, which is actually you'd be better off apart. So our view is to try and balance that universal credit should do a lot towards that. People getting married, you know, they make these choices at the moment they feel constrained financially for those reasons and that would help. I think uh, uh, normally, and Caroline, I think uh, the benefit cap, that's right. Um, the. Uh, the yeah, I'm just about to answer the question about the benefit cap, actually. Uh, <coughs> the benefit cap uh, is the whole issue about that is whether uh, you uh, accept that there's an average income uh, that uh, you know, people on benefit should receive. Uh, and uh, you do whatever you can to support those who are unable, therefore, to move into work. For example, there are exemptions to those people who are on disability benefits, people who are widows, pensions, etc. These sort of people, people who are on tax credits, they're not going to be caught up in the cap. What you're trying to look to do, and we want to do lots of other things, like maybe trying to move people fast through uh, to work programs to get them straight through to work. We uh, said at the time when I was pushing this through, and we'll talk more about it when, the, when these aspects come in the Lords into the report stage, which is to look at discretionary payments and support for people in those areas to transition from the position they're in to a position where they actually are in a more productive lifestyle and therefore able to support themselves uh, beyond that income cap. So there are uh, big debates, and I recognize at the moment there is a debate at the moment about the level. Uh, that will c become clear in the debates that we have in the Lords uh, probably in January, I would think. Um, I think for me, I think there's a very the quick point about risk factors. Yeah, I think that was, well, I thought that was more for you than for me. Yeah, no, absolutely. We, we always want to not just be mm. talking about um, preventing risky behaviors, but also promoting positive behaviors for youth and talking about resilience as well as risks. And, you know, the concern there is that you, you don't want to have low aspirations for youth. You don't want to aspire only to prevent risk. You also want to aspire to positive outcomes, which is why I try to put so much stress on the academic skills and the social skills, because if the youth are going to be... Um, successful in life in every way that we'd like them to succeed, including being attractive to employers and someone that employers want to reach out and hire, then they have to have the skills. And it just, it should not be acceptable that we write off such a large percentage of young people. We do it in both, both here and in the United States as ha having low skills, being unable to learn, having unmanageable behavior. And we really wish them when they turn up in secondary school, we really wish that they would just go away and stop disrupting the place. And so they're disengaged and they don't stay on. And it should be completely unacceptable that we do that, whether on the ground of risk or resilience. But I take your point. Okay, I'm going to take one more round of questions. I hope you'll forgive us for overrunning <coughs> a little. Um, the lady who's very patient <coughs> to be waiting <coughs> over there. And then um, 
lady with the grey um, shawl just three rows behind you, and then there's been um, somebody right at the back who's been patiently waiting <coughs> second round, so please. Hi, my name's Josephine. I'm a student health visitor. My question is with regard to the council housing 50% reduction on the price of a property. Um, do you feel that this initiative will give people um, and young people in troubled neighbourhoods a reason to take pride in their, in their area um, and give them sort of tangible aspirations of home ownership? And how are you going to address the fact that unless they're getting a decent education from a young age and, you know, ability to achieve and to get jobs and to afford their house, how, how that's going to work. I'm just interested in your, your opinion on that. Uh, Kitty Stewart from the LSE. Um, a question for the Secretary of State again. Uh, given your um, concern about improving work incentives for, okay. <laughs> for low-income families, <clears throat> how do you justify cutting the subsidy for, for childcare through the childcare tax credit from a maximum of 80% to a maximum of 70% of costs? The, two -year -old, the, the places for disadvantaged two-year-olds are great for parents of two-year-olds, but they don't make up for the cut that you've uh, introduced for all the other families, and that's really affected work incentives for those families. And then gentleman right at the back in the corner there. Um, my name is Teddy Groves. Um, I'd like to follow up on the last question about the benefits cap, which someone asked, because I thought the Secretary of State's answer was quite unsatisfactory. Um, would he and all the panellists please defend or attack the principle of a nationwide cap on benefits. Okay, so um, uh, I'd like all three to, of you to have a chance, <coughs> and I think I'd like all three of you to have a chance to leave people with a takeaway, not necessarily in response to those particular questions, but from, from everything we've heard this evening. So maybe you'd like to take the specific points of which three were aimed very specifically at, at current government policy. Yep. Um, and then <coughs> I'll go to Jane and Anne, and then maybe come back for a final takeaway point, please. I, I, I thought I did answer the question on the, uh, or the point that was being made on the cap. Um, the point that I'm really making is that the cap is really about establishing some a kind of fairness in the system, which is to say that, look, you know, there are people out there who are on lower marginal incomes working who feel somewhat agreed that there are others out there earning much more than them and not working. That's the balance of fairness. We may not like it. Some may agree. Some may disagree. The question is really what is the rational and reasonable level to set it back? It's the principle behind the cap. I, I happen to uh, agree with it, but, you know, if you don't, that's fine. But my point is at least that's the balance of the argument that remains. On the childcare point, which was raised over here, I think, by uh, Katie, wasn't it? Um, you know, I recognize the point you're making, but we, we have since that point anyway two-year-old children, nursery places. I mean, a lot of other areas we've put support and money in behind. And the other thing about childcare is right now, the way it's structured, <clears throat> actually a huge amount of uh, parents don't take up childcare because of the complications of the tax credit system. They really aren't aware of it. What we're going to do under universal credit is we're going to add another 300 million back into the system to allow childcare actually to be taken up at any hours of work. So they don't just take it up at their 16-hour point. We're actually going to spread it. So we're going to be investing more money into the childcare support program uh, to make sure that more parents can get it. It should hugely help, particularly lone parents who are looking for work, because many of them complain that actually taking up only at the 16-hour mark when they really might be able to do work at other hours means that they actually are, are left behind. So they'll be able to use childcare because we're investing more money in that as well at the same time. 
that's uh, what we're going to do in the future. Those are the two. Oh, and the last one was Josephine Council House Sales Point. Yet I recognise that the reforms that are taking place in the education system to try and create a, a much better focus on primary education to help children get a much better base start into secondary. If you talk to lots of head teachers at secondary schools, they'll all tell you that what's happened is too often children have arrived at the secondary school not ready uh, for, <coughs> for, that, uh, for the process of what then takes place, allowing them to become academies, allowing them to focus on excellence in that way, and secondary schools with its program academies, building on what the last government did and you know, saying it was good and therefore we want to extend it, that I think will have a huge effect. The second thing is, in the work program alone, what we're doing is we're introducing a lot through the uh, private and, and voluntary sector providers, a lot of remedial education that will help people who have come out of school <coughs> sorry, with very few skills and try and build up those skill bases so that they can actually have a position to go into work and through work, of course, be in the position to afford their house. It has to be said <coughs> that the commitment we've made on the back of those sales would be that money would be ploughed straight back into building more social housing. So this would essentially be a cycle that those who can buy and move out, but that money goes straight back into building more social housing as part of a much wider programme to build more social housing. Thank you very much. So could you each, just a final, we, we have trespassed over the, the end of the time, <coughs> but um, I hope you appreciate why. A final points that you would like us all to take away before we finish. Do you want to go to So um, uh, thank you for the invitation to be here. It's been a, a really interesting evening. Um, just on the childcare point, um, it's a much longer discussion, but um, uh, I, I fully applaud uh, the movement to delink uh, the child care subsidy from you know having a fixed number of hours of work. I think people move into work much more gradually, and um, people shouldn't have to get off the cliff and go into 16 hours of work in order to get some benefit. Um, but I think uh, every every government that I've I've talked to has um, underestimated the kind of challenge that child care payments pose for low income families, and even a low copayment is a very serious barrier to going into work and working. So changing the child care subsidy rate from you know 80% down to 70% may feel like a small change, but it's actually completely in the wrong direction. And there are some families who need 100% subsidy in order to get into work, even for just a few hours. Mm -hmm. And it's a really good investment in terms of the kind of other outcomes we're talking about, but also employment. So um, this is a tough thing with child care to talk about free child care, but there, the, the subsidy actually should be moving in the other direction. Um, but so uh, this has been such an interesting conversation tonight because we've ranged back and forth between primary prevention, secondary prevention, and tertiary. And some of the measures are for adults who are, are young people who are already un unemployed. They're already in trouble. They've already left school with poor skills. But some of what we're also talking about is more primary prevention, expanding in, in, in interventions in the early years, the nurse family partnerships, the child care for disadvantaged kids, more generous subsidies for working families. And then, you know, I hope I've emphasized the secondary interventions. I, there's so much good going on in the schools here, both under the last government and the current government. Uh, there's additional resources being put in in terms of the pupil premiums. So um, I think this is the right time to have this relentless focus on kids' skills and not letting any kid leave school without adequate academic skills and social and behavioral skills. And it's absolutely achievable. And um, 
we shouldn't give up until it's done because it's just not conscionable that kids should leave school without these skills. And if not, we're going to be paying for it in what we saw last August and in what we see in, in youth unemployment. And it's going to be a lot more costly to address later on in life. So uh, just a really, really quick uh, off the top of my head, what I think really matters out of the really interesting points that both um, the Secretary of State and Jane, but also the audience have made, and I know there are lots more. First of all, what we really, 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 really need if we want to help low-income communities and low-income people, and particularly low-income young people, is better options for renting, definitely, and there's no one golden bullet there. Secondly, it is definitely true among our families, I know it's only 200, but still, it's a fair number, and we track them over a long period of time, and they were in communities, that stable relationships hugely help, but you can't orchestrate stable relationships. So some of our mothers, including ones that I quoted, who are really trying to do well, are struggling with unstable relationships. And in fragile economies, in neighborhoods under pressure, where there's no outlet for children and where access to work is really difficult, it's much, much harder to build stable relationships. So we do have to recognize that there's a bit of a package there um, I thought the employer step, you know, work experience, pre-apprenticeship, apprenticeship step with employers on side was really important and much, much stronger push on that would be great. On public space, three things. We cannot get decent public space in poor areas because there's too little of it unless we do something about traffic. That is absolutely key and lots of the parents talk about it. Secondly, again, as the Secretary of State said, street supervision, and I would go much further and say you have to have supervision in parks, in play areas, and on the streets if you want them to be properly used, and they are public spaces, and they should be available to families. At the moment, they're the most family-unfriendly and old-people-unfriendly spaces there are. Um, and thirdly, you need organised, cheap, or free activities. And one of my quotes on the free basketball court, what difference did it made to the area and to the estate, I thought was pretty remarkable. Finally, Trafford Hall that um, uh, the Secretary of State referred to, and he visited and spent two hours locked away without any of us present with uh, 20 of our activist community dynamos. Um, so we don't quite know what went on, but they did give you a good time, I think. I mean, in other words, they forcibly expressed their views. Um, <laughs> Uh, one of the things that that centre is now doing is a community resilience programme and it's going to target vulnerable families and vulnerable young people and I hope I'll be able to come and talk to you about that because I think you'd be very interested. But I think everybody else would too so when you get a letter following this event saying please help us do this you'll know why. A final. Uh, well I just want to thank Anne for this book because I think it's an excellent book I think it's an excellent study um, I hope I'll persuade a lot of my cabinet colleagues to read it. I'm certainly going to put it on the reading list for the Prime Minister over Christmas. Uh, I'll test him when he comes back too. Um, but the key thing is it really does help inform what we're trying to do. Look, you know, I don't make no bones about this. We, you know, I wish we weren't in this economic situation we're in at the moment. It makes quite a lot of the leeway, uh, you know, tighter than it might be. But what I'm trying to do through all these things, and we can have disagreement or agreement about it, to try and focus on trying to build some of those long-term uh, changes that will actually help and improve uh, some of the life chances. And I just, the point I was making today about how do you measure this is because unless we're able to measure this and get a much better sense 
of therefore what constitutes poverty in the broadest sense of the word, then we're going to find it very difficult to understand what we're doing is right and what we're doing is wrong. And that is a concern that I have, that a lot of government action is action that is driven mostly by an idea that you want to put something in and thus gain something political from it, rather than understand that when you put something in, it has a really disproportionate effect on the other side as things go out. And so <clears throat> it's where Graham Allen, I've asked him specifically, you know, he's not, he's not uh, in my party he's, uh, and often disagrees with me about different things, but I've asked him specifically to look at how we can lock in an understanding of how we measure what works and therefore understand the things that work, we should actually be putting the greatest emphasis behind and measuring it. And one of the things I wanted to say about poverty, and I'll finish on this, is that you know, one of the things we do need to understand, for example, is that people can cycle in and out of poverty on an income base, but people who even have an income that, takes the, uh, that are low uh, actually may have assets. And the real issue we never ask about is asset poverty, mm -hmm. which, which stops people who are in poverty being mobile or being able to dictate their own circumstances. So trying to understand how we can get people somehow to build up assets the value of those assets is really, really important. Uh, I don't have the answer to that, but that to me seems to be one of the great drives we should be trying to focus on, is looking at asset poverty rather than sometimes just income poverty, because holding assets, being able to get some asset, uh, access to asset, allows you to, be, to dictate your passage through life rather than have it dictated to you, I think. Thank you very much indeed. And, and, and thank you to all our speakers. And, and I, I would be grateful if on the way out...